0: Hey, hi, hello, welcome to Hollywood Party. I'm glad you could make it back. So today's guest has so much information out there about them, which is great. And he is connected to so many of our former guests. So that means this is gonna be an epically long party. And that is definitely fitting because our guest is the king of epic films, David O. Selznick. So grab a drink and join the party. that you like David O. Selznick movies today, you'll probably get a really shitty look thrown at you from some snobby-ass movie nerds. For some reason, his films are now regarded as basic well, pour me a PSL and call me a basic bitch because I love his movies. There was a reason why he was the top of the mountain for so long, so let's figure out why. The Selznick family was tangled, kind of. So we're gonna be covering David, his brother Myron, and their dad, Louis. Daddy, Louis Joseph, was born in Russia in 1872, or he was possibly born in Poland in 1871. Hell, there's even evidence that he was born in 1869. Whatever. He was the first son of Ida, and Joseph Selznick. All six children were born in Eastern Europe. Selznick and a younger brother immigrated to the U.S. in 1888 when he was about 13 years old. Their dad came to America, remarrying. He left wife number one, Ida, back in Russia. His new wife died. Then he remarried again, leaving kids from wife number two to be adopted by his dead wife's family. He ended up having 21 kids, so honestly, check your family tree. You might be a Selznick. Lewis married Flossie Sachs in 1896. Flossie was born in Pittsburgh, and was of Lithuanian descent. She was down-to-earth, cheerful, and a better poker player than her husband. She would secretly stash money because she knew he would spend it like it was going out of style. At the time, Lewis had multiple jewelry shops and was a self-professed diamond expert. Yeah, me too, buddy. And he also said he was the secretary of Nickel Savings Bank. Their first child, Howard, was born in 1897. He possibly had damage from forceps used at birth? He definitely had something wrong with him because whatever it was was passed down to his children. Myron, number two, was born in 1898, and Flossie was so happy because he was, quote, flawless, so she poured all of her attention onto him forever. He also became the unofficial oldest child and felt responsible for the family. Ruth was born in 1899 or 1900 and died when she was two years old from blood poisoning after a foot infection. There were rumblings that this had to do with child neglect. May 10th, 1902, David was born and became his dad's favorite. The family moved from Pittsburgh to New York City, and by 1909, Lewis had dropped the extra E in their last name. As school kids, Myron got into a lot of fights over their Jewishness or defending David. David was super into books, a very nerdy kind of a kid. He also wore glasses, so that didn't help. The brothers were friends, but they loved to challenge each other. Myron was very much to the point, like all business, and David loved words. He started his love of memos when he was 11. David recalled, my father was very proud of my compositions, even when I was extremely young, and this encouraged me to try to improve my vocabulary. So I found myself night after night with a dictionary by my side, laboriously looking up all the words in the classics that I couldn't understand. This process was so slow that naturally the scenes engraved themselves indelibly on my mind. I can, to this day, tell the exact details of scenes from books that I read when I must have been somewhere between 10 and 12 years old. Lewis got into the movies through a friend. He went into Universal like discuss stocks, then found an empty office, went out, bought a general manager sign, and slapped it on the door. When Carl Lemley asked who appointed him general manager, Lewis said, oh Pat Powers, like this other big wig at Universal. And when Pat asked Lewis, he'd say, oh yeah, Carl gave me this position. Yeah, it worked for a while, but he didn't last at Universal because he was bored and didn't have all the power. So Lewis organizes World Film Company. He was the VP and the general manager. Since Lewis was self-made and taught himself, he didn't mind that David. David's grades were slipping because he was having David go to meetings with him. Myron was not invited. The company's slogan was Selznick Pictures Make Happy Hours. For a family known for heavily drinking, I applaud them for getting Happy Hour into their tagline. That is very smooth. Now, Lewis started signing big stars like Constant and Joan Bennett and Ala Nazimova. Then he started running their corporations for them. In 1921, Lewis had to be bailed out and signed with Adolph Zucker. When he's good with money, he's great. When he's bad with it, uh, you're effed. Myron got his dad to give him $25,000 to go to California and sign Olive Thomas, whose contract was up for renewal at Triangle Pictures. Olive was this gorgeous Ziegfeld girl who had an affair with Ziggy, and he kept a nude portrait of her in his office, even when he was married to Billy Burke. She did not think that was very cute. Olive married Mary Pickford's alcoholic brother, Jack, and they had a perfectly awful marriage. While on vacation in Paris, she took what she thought was aspirin, but in fact was mercury for her husband's syphilis. Some people say it was a suicide, but it was ruled an accident and it took her five days to die a uh, awful death she supposedly haunts the new amsterdam theater in new york city it's now owned by disney and they will not use male night guards because the ghost only messes with dudes so anywho she was under contract with the Selznicks at the time of her death and david saw her as an older sister and said Ollie, a fragrant rosebud suddenly crumbled to ashes, a dancing sunbeam snuffed out like a candle. David was always a very romantic guy, if you couldn't tell. Even though one of their big stars had died, the family is doing super well financially. They had a house, as well as an apartment on Fifth Avenue, a fleet of Rolls-Royce cars, a German maid and a Japanese butler named Ishii, and yeah, David got the Spanish flu in 1919, and it was pretty bad for him. He went to another studio head's mansion on Long Island to recover. That owner had an adopted daughter living there, and David and this girl are teenagers, and they're messing around and start banging. Myron found out, and he starts up with her. He liked to have sex with ladies David had relationships with because he thought he could show them what a real man could do. Weird. Well, the adopted daughter gets knocked up. I spent a good chunk of time trying to figure out who the hell this girl was. I don't know. I don't know who she was. Uh, I don't know who her dad was. And what, if anything, happened to this pregnancy? So, if anyone knows of an illegitimate child of David or Myron, let me know, because I would love to find out the ending of this mystery. The first film David worked on was one starring Theda Barra, so it was a big deal. Lewis threw the premiere party at the Ritz-Carlton. Over 2,000 people were invited, and the guest list was... The Hearst came, Ziegfeld's, W.D. Griffith, George M. Cohan. This is the kind of party we would want to go to. Unfortunately, the majority of the films made at Selznick studio didn't survive because the studio went bankrupt to the tune of $11 million in 1922. That is $170 million in 2020 money. David's first real friend outside of Myron and his dad was Ben Hecht. He was an author and also didn't feel any kind of closeness to his Jewishness. He called himself the un-Jew. Like almost all of the studio heads, David wanted to assimilate. Ben made David think of becoming a writer, and he even outlined a book. Obviously, David was going to write a book about the picture business. They say write what you know. So this is what he thought about the picture business during this time. The picture man who says that the movie game has at last reached a normal condition and is now running on the same business lines as older industries is either a damn fool or a damn liar. The movie game came can never be normal until persons in the production end, and I do not refer to the stars, are paid reasonable salaries. Until some sort of sane selling method is devised and the prevailing primitive bartering system is dropped. Until a better class of men replace the hacks in production, the cutthroats in distribution, and the illiterates in exhibition. But was he wrong? No. Ben ended up going to LA and he won an Oscar for his first script, because that's normal. Myron was also in LA, so David becomes super bored with New York and went to Florida. The family was thinking about buying 8,000 acres in Palm Beach and turning it into the LA of the East. That did not happen because the Selznicks were flat-ass Baroque in 1925. David ended up moving in with Myron in LA at the Villa Carlotta Apartments. This is where he meets neighbor George Cucor, and they become really good friends for a while. At this point in time, they look more like brothers than he and Myron and they were super, super close. Myron was a producer and he was working at UA. David was on a two-week trial working for Harry Raff at MGM. Harry and David had to escort Edie and Irene Mayer to the Mayfair Ball. Louis B. Mayer was also there as well, so David is not super excited about this double date with your dad weirdness. Months later, David and Irene run into each other at a beach house in Santa Monica. On their first date, he drives her past the old Thomas Inn Studios, and he says, I'm gonna own that one day. I know it sounds cheesy, but it really happened. I go into way more detail about Irene and David's dating history at her party so i don't want to repeat myself too much so if you don't know her story head over there she is freaking awesome. David ends up getting fired at MGM because he won't apologize to Stromberg after an argument. The Mayors were on vacation in New York at the time and LB was super stoked about this and took credit for firing him in front of Irene, even though Irving Thalberg was the one who actually did the firing. And I'm making it sound like LB hated David's guts. It wasn't that. It's just, He didn't want anyone dating his daughter. That's really what it was. Irene and Edie have a massive sibling rivalry. She and David had to wait for Edie to find someone to marry before they could even announce they were engaged. Like, this is massive waiting game. Margaret Mayer, their mom, asked David, can you please set AD up with like one of your guy friends over at paramount please so this is what irene said happened i was to stay a virgin keep quiet and keep david around until Edie got someone and my father said can't david find someone for her all the young men he knows at paramount guys coming off the train from the east and at last david did come up with someone respectable overweight in a black coat with a black fedora and he took Edie out once and never called again it was george kukor and my mother said Is that the best he can do? David couldn't even tell that George was a homosexual. Edie would go on to be one of the foremost hostesses in old Hollywood. But imagine just for a moment that George Cucor was in need of a beard and that she was okay with that. Their parties would have been freaking insane, dude. Hell yeah. Edie did have a major crush on Myron, but he was not interested and married a lady named Marjorie in Paris in 1928. They went on to have one child, Joan. Irene said, Edie was the worst person I've known and she came by that honestly. Edie was very picky about the way she looked and would handpick photos that she would allow her dad to Hang up in the house or have up at MGM. The ones that Edie discarded, Irene kept in a file labeled "Revenge." Where is that file now? Seriously. So even though Irene and David are having to wait a long time, he's definitely seeing other ladies. Most notably Jean Arthur. Like they have a pretty big affair, and he thinks she's a really good actress. Um, she will not really talk about him later on in life because she, like, says she regrets giving him up because she went on and married like some guy spur of the moment. Finally, Edie gets married to Bill Goats. LB got him a job at Fox because he owned a ton of stock in that studio. This is why MGM stars get loaned out to Fox so much. Their wedding was the event of the season. It was 600 people, white tie and tails at the Biltmore Hotel in downtown LA. Two days later, like Monday back at work, David and Irene go into LB's office and are like, hey, what's up? We're engaged and we want to be married next month. LB says, why so soon? What was there a fire sale on my daughters this is the first time irene stands up for herself to her dad and is like look david's waited long enough we followed all the rules with edie i have to i have to like align myself with him and lb gets pissed but they get their april wedding it was at the mayor family home and legit nothing could stop them because lb's dad who was living with them died 10 days before the wedding like holy crap they honeymooned in europe came home broke and myron had to wire them $3,000 $3,000 once they got back to New York City for them to even get through customs. Right after they got back to LA, David got in a fight with B.P. Schulberg about his salary and quit Paramount. So he and this dude, Lewis Millstone, start planning an indie production company and they get this guy named Jock Whitney involved. That is a super waspy sounding name, right? Well, Jock was like King Wasp because his dad left him the largest estate in American history at the time, $179 million or $3 billion in 2020 money. That's some walking around money. They got a deal through RKO, But LB wanted him to come work at MGM and take over for Thalberg because they were fighting and Irving was like on heart attack number two at the time. So LB's thinking, hey, David, you can come take over here, like eventually. But David stuck to his guns and he's like, no, I'm sticking with RKO, even though it's, you know, not MGM. And one of the first movies he does was Symphony of Six Million. And it was a very heavily Jewish themed movie, which is a really odd choice for him, especially since he doesn't really feel a connection to that side of himself. David starts having a fair because he thinks it's just part of the job and slash feels entitled to his star's vaginas. He even told one girl that his marriage was, quote, more dynastic than personal. That is a load of crap because I read some of the letters between him and Irene and they're kind of hot. So their brother Howard was causing trouble for the family. He was married with two little girls. He would get drunk, do drugs, molest some women, but Lewis and Flossie told his wife, hey, just stay with him, we'll give you $75 a week, and she did for a a long time. He, at this point, is pretty much just hanging out in Myron Selznick's office every day, if he's not, like, molesting people. David is still obsessed with doing stories about how messed up movie stars' lives can be, so he does What Price Hollywood. The character that would morph into Norman Maine in A Star Is Born was supposedly based on director Marshall Nealon, John Barrymore, and brother Myron, all big league drunks. On David's 30th birthday, there was $100 in his bank account, like most 30 year olds now. The reason for his low checking account was because he gambled a lot and not well. He was having an affair with Constance Bennett and she was a really good poker player who got a lot of money from him because she knew his tells since they were banging, so she'd play him in poker and take all of his money. Irene started to get on him about cash because she's pregnant, and they need to be smart about money. She tells him you either need to give up gambling or gift giving. David was very generous, like flowers, gifts, whatever, to everybody. He just loved giving gifts, and I kind of like that about him. He was in the delivery room, which is super rare back then, when their son Jeffrey Mayer Selznick was born, August 4th, 1932, and David was convinced someone had come in and stolen the baby but as a boy jeffrey looked just like irene i have a photo up like there is no doubt whose kid that was directly after the birth david and myron go out and get sauced but myron was not celebrating he was super pissed because he had a girl and david had a boy lewis had a real bone on for a grandson and now his favorite son gave him one so there's lots of jealousy going there lewis straight up called jeffrey his eternity. Myron told David to give Jeffrey to him, he'll make a man out of him. Jeffrey only knew Myron for 11 years, and he did end up loving him more than his own father, so I guess that kind of worked out. David and Jeffrey had a really super effing weird relationship. David was straight up jealous and suspicious of his own son, like he would not talk to Irene in front of him kind of like thinking he was a baby spy or something. Weird. Lewis had been in kind of poor health for a while, mostly due to diabetes. He died of a cerebral hemorrhage in January of 1933. Everybody was there, and the entire family just left Irene and Ishi to handle the arrangements. Irene said that David cried in his sleep for Lewis for two years, and that he never got over the death of his father. He left RKO and went to work at MGM, probably because he was looking for a father figure, and LB thought he was everyone's daddy. Honestly, he got major shit for nepotism, but his movies showed that he was actually talented. It wasn't just because he married the boss's daughter. Here's one idea that he had uh, that never came to fruition. He wanted to do a biblical story, The Two Thieves, with Robert Montgomery and Gable. I could not see either one of them in a Bible story, especially in their prime, like 1930s haircut and a toga. It would be comical. LB really, really wanted Joan Crawford to do Dancing Lady, and they This is how david got her to do it he said joan i don't know if you can play this part it's kind of tardy i think it's more gene harlow style joan gets all pissy and says look mr selznick i was playing hookers before harlow knew what they were so let's not hear any talk about style because i know more about that than she ever will and this is the movie where she starts having a big affair in real life with clark gable so she was definitely right she did know more about being a tart than Jean Harlow. Myrin is doing amazing in his business at this time. He expanded to having 50 employees in the 1930s and his clients would send him flower arrangements in the shape of 10%. No one sends flowers in shapes anymore. When did that die off? And speaking of flowers, the family bought Howard a flower shop on Sunset Boulevard called Forget-Me-Nots. It was near the Trucadero. Obviously, it got all of the studio business. They did that because he was shooting up dope and they needed to give him something to do. And Myron, even though his business is like doing kick-ass, is really a super mega drunk right now. Like, he drank a bottle of cologne at Loretta Young's house because he thought it was alcohol. I mean, it kind of was. She actually has a really great story about a dinner with him. One night, I was at his place for dinner with Lombard and Merle Oberon. We were three pets of his as clients, and he was drinking, not drunk, just drinking so that you couldn't quite get his attention. Myron's sitting there like a little cock of the walk at the head of the table, and there with the three actresses wolfing down the food, and he kept saying, oh, Merle, you're so gorgeous, and oh, Loretta, you're something, and oh, Carol, you're really... Finally, he says, oh boy, would I love to have an affair with either of you, or all of you. And he's going on, and it's tough, and Merle put her fork down and said, okay, Myron, come on, right now. Well, he looks and he says Merle and he just looked like a shocked old lady she said it again now if you ever do this again you've got to prove yourself right then and it stopped him cold that recollection was from Loretta Young, who is the pearl clutcher of all pearl clutchers, but Carol Lombard was there. I bet she would have told a much spicier and much more honest version of that story, but nonetheless, it's a great story. It really seemed like Myron drank because he wasn't happy with the family dynamic and because he was super smart. Like his job was easy and he thought it was beneath him, yet he raked in the dough. Unlike David, who in 1935 lost $40,000 gambling, he only won $7,000. How was that even fun at that point? And that fact is something LB brought up when David's contract was up for negotiation at MGM. He straight up told Irene, I know you people are broke, just make him sign the new contract. Of course, David did not, and he started Selznick International Pictures. Irving Thalberg and Norma Shearer were the first two shareholders, giving David $200,000, and then Myron ponied up 200 grand to match them. The company was founded at the Waldorf Hotel, Jock Whitney was the chairman, and David was president with a five-year contract to be executive producer. What's interesting is David put up no money of his own nothing to start the studio because everybody knew what he was giving was himself. I know that sounds cheesy, but it is totally true. And he also got the old in-studio like he wanted. George Cukor was the first person contracted to the studio. Face to face, everybody loved David because he was super nice and understanding. It was his damn memos that pissed everybody off. Memos were like the text messages of the 1930s. And David was your friend who texts you a paragraph, back to back to back to back before you can even respond. So it got really old really fast for basically everybody. On May 18th, 1936, Daniel Mayer Selznick was born. David and Irene then changed Jeffrey's name from Jeffrey Mayer Selznick to Louis Jeffrey Selznick. So his initials were the same as his grandpa Selznick. Jokes on David, L. Jeffrey Selznick looks just like LB when he grows up. Like probably much to the annoyance of his father. Daniel was David's favorite because he saw him as the more creative of the two boys. Two days after Daniel was born, Kay Brown, who was the talent agent for David in New York City, telegraphs him that he needed to buy Gone with the Wind. He said, okay, but I don't know what stars I'm buying this for, and she cables back, Betty Davis, Gable, or Ron Coleman, just buy it. Thalberg declined buying the rights and said, no Civil War picture ever made a nickel, and then kind of gave a wink and said, let David have it. Irving knew what he was doing, besides how was he gonna do Marie Antoinette and Gone With the Wind at the same time? That's a recipe for a heart attack right there if you ask me. So no one in Hollywood is snapping up the rights to Gone with the Wind. And on July 7th, 1936, David got them for $50,000. Then he went on vacation to Hawaii and finally read the book. And he figures out, shit, this book is massive. How am I gonna make a film out of this? The book sold 1 million copies in the first month, so it didn't really need publicity, but David needed to buy himself time. He had no stars, no script, or sets. So they created that big Search for Scarlet campaign just to keep the public interested in it for a long time. Genius. At the same time that he's reading Gone with the Wind and trying to figure that out, William Wellman pitched him a story called It Happened in Hollywood. The legend was that Wellman told Irene the story, and she nagged David to get it into production. This is what Irene says, really. He never told me a story in his whole life. We had nothing in common. He was a terror, a shoot-up-the-town fellow, trying to be a big masculine, I don't know what. David had a real weakness for him. I did not share it. I never had an interesting conversation with him he was so colorful but he was on the way to becoming colorful creating a personality I don't think he liked wives star is born came about because I nagged and nagged and nagged David since RKO I said Hollywood it's all around you you can't avoid it what price Hollywood came out of that but it wasn't right and David kept fellows around on it and there was a whole pile of stuff out of the nagging came a lot of stories this is why I like Irene She just calls out people's bullshit, it's fantastic. So the first Star is Born is happening while David's still trying to get the script going for Gone with the Wind. He wanted Margaret Mitchell, the author, to do the script, and she said, impossible. I gave it to you, lock, stock, and barrel, you take it. Sidney Howard wrote it until he was crushed to death by a tractor on his farm. Then about a dozen other writers tried, but honestly, David wrote it in memo format. By the time David got a treatment for Gone with the Wind, it was Christmas time, and all the way across the world in Austria. Vivian Lee is on a ski trip, broke her ankle, so she spends that Christmas reading Gone with the Wind as well. Katherine Hepburn claimed that Margaret Mitchell sent her a copy of the book because she wanted her for Scarlet. Really? But Pandro Berman, at RKO, said the role was too unsympathetic for her. In 1937, David, who was always full of energy, felt like he needed a boost like his 30s are getting to him and was given Benzedrine for the first time. He was also smoking four to five packs of cigarettes a day. So super awesome combination for your heart. And he keeps the Benzedrine in his pocket like they're freaking Tic Tacs. One of his secretaries recalled being at work late one night and she's like, hey, give me one of those. And he just pulls one out of his pocket and pops it right in your mouth. Out of everything bad that David did to his marriage, 50 years later, Irene says, I think the Benzedrine was the worst thing. One of David's personal personal secretaries, wrote a book called I Lost My Girlish Laughter, about her time working for him. It's in print again, and Orson Welles even adapted it into a play that was broadcast on CBS on January 27th, 1939, which coincided with the first day of production of Gone with the Wind. I have the broadcast on my blog if you're interested in listening to it. It's pretty good. Myron famously introduced David to Vivian Lee during the filming of The Burning of Atlanta by saying, hey genius, here's your Scarlet. Vivian learned that she got the lead role on Christmas Day of 1938. I have already talked about why QCOR was fired. David's other secretary, Marcella Rabwin, said this of how the shooting of Gone with the Wind really went down. It was a case of utter chaos. They burned themselves, and out of the ashes rose this phoenix of a picture. I have never known so much hatred. The whole atmosphere was so acrid. Lee hated Fleming with a passion fleming hated her he called her the vilest names clark gable hated david he was a very anti-semitic man he used to talk about that jew producer everybody hated david he interfered in everything he would call up in the middle of the night to poor lyle wheeler and say i can't shoot that scene now get in there and put up aunt pity pat's living room everything had to be done and redone he was despised I definitely go into more detail about Cukor's firing at his party, but that bit about Gable and Billy Haynes and other not wonderful stories about Gable, like the one I just told you, are the reasons why I don't plan on doing a party about him anytime soon. All the biographies out about him do not include anything that paints him in a poor yet honest light. There's like one janky documentary on him from Ted Turner in the 80s. How is there no good information out there about the King of Hollywood? It is astonishing. Gable is in and out of a lot of these parties so I just wanted to explain why I've never done him, and probably won't for a long time. Back to Gone with the Wind, I could do an entire episode about how everything went down, and David using Hitchcock to create tension in certain scenes, and Victor Fleming having a nervous breakdown, but there is a fantastic Gone with the Wind documentary, I linked it on my blog. It's produced by both of David's sons, and they even won a Peabody Award for it, so it's definitely worth watching. Oscar night, 1940. Irene made a very big deal in her book about how David left her behind at home, and she didn't end up sitting at his table during the awards ceremony so i did some research uh 50 years later she is still super pissed about that night and i get it but she walked into the ceremony right behind him like it's on neutral footage and there are multiple photos of her sitting at the same table so she maybe remembered it incorrectly but she's still pissed off 50 years later and i think something else that factors into it was she was pregnant at the time and when she told david he was like you're mistaken so she ended up having an abortion. Right after Gone with the Wind, David starts working on Rebecca, and he and Alfred Hitchcock were not BFFs. Like, basically everyone, Hitchcock did not enjoy the memos that rained down upon him like money on a stripper. There's also a documentary about their weird relationship. I have that linked on the blog as well. Hitch really didn't like David, and he turned him into the villain in Real Window. So, like, if you watch that movie, Raymond Burr is David O. Salsnick. What sucks for everyone is that David wins back to back Best Picture Oscars. So in his mind, writing reams of memos while cracked out on Benzedrine is the ticket to success, because no other producer had won back-to-back Oscars, so this is the way you do it, apparently. So right after David's massive successes, Myron's wife finally leaves him because of his alcoholism and takes their daughter Joan to live back east. Also around this time, their longtime butler, Ishii, comes back from a trip to Japan, and all of a sudden, he hates Jews. Obviously, his Jewish employers were not cool with that and fired him. He ends up in freaking Manzanar, which was a concentration camp for Japanese people located in California. He ends up writing to Myron and is like, hey buddy, can you help me out? And the cells were like, new phone, who this? He eventually got out, worked in hotels around LA and died in 1953. Irene ended up taking Myron back east to try and help him sober up. The treatment she helped him get didn't stick because as soon as he got back to LA, he's at a director's house for dinner and they're like busting his balls balls for being sober and that all just went to shit. And he really took a nosedive into alcoholism even harder. David ended up liquidating Selznick International for cash and he starts up David O. Selznick Productions, Inc. Then he gets nominated for a Best Picture Oscar for the third time. Or suspicion, but he does not win. It goes to How Green Was My Valley. I don't know. How green was it? This is the same time period that he meets a lady named Phyllis Isley in his New York City offices through his talent agent, Kay Brown. Kay had already brought him Gone with the Wind and Rebecca, so whenever she mentions, hey, you need to look at something, he does. Phyllis was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1919. She was an only child whose father wanted to be a Broadway actor, but instead raised stock and had a movie theater in Oklahoma. She went on to study at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York City, and that is where she met her husband, Robert Walker. They married in 1939, went to Hollywood where he got more work than her. They had two sons, Robert Jr. and Michael. David flew her out to LA to test for a role in a movie called Claudia. By the end of 1942, he had invested $7,500 in grooming Phyllis and changed her name to Jennifer Jones. He loaned her out to Fox for Song of Bernadette, and yeah, they're having an affair. But when you're all jacked up on benzos, you've got plenty of time for other ladies besides your wife and your mistress. So David goes after Claudette Colbert and uh, Shirley Temple. She was 17 and engaged at the time, but David chased after her and said, if you hold out, You'll get loaned out, come on, guy, damn it. So the next movie he produces is Since You Went Away, and he does it under the name Jeffrey Daniels, which he thought was a super cool tribute, like both of his kids' names, and they were like, oh, you're neglecting us, we don't really care, whatever. He cast Jennifer Jones, along with her soon-to-be ex-husband, so that's that's not awkward. Jennifer ended up winning an Oscar for Song of Bernadette. Irene was not at that ceremony. She was in Laguna, <coughs> sick but doesn't remember what she was sick with. I feel like she knew what was going on. Like she had to. The day after Jennifer won, she filed for divorce from Robert Walker. On March 23, 1944, Myron died of an abdominal hemorrhage at the Santa Monica Hospital. David, Irene, and Flossie were all there. He left his estate to Flossie and his daughter Joan, this is what it consisted of: two houses in Laguna Beach, a farmhouse in Michigan, a ranch, a house, and two beach lots in Hawaii. Haven Hill, Myron's old house at Lake Arrowhead, the plot of land where Myron's office stood on Wolcher Boulevard. It was leased to Neiman Marcus, and his interest in Gone with the Wind: 6.77%. David had to look after all of that for Joan until she became of age. Jeffrey and Daniel did not even see their parents' breakup coming. Like, did not see them fight in front of each other. David told the kids it was just a separation. Irene told him, you have six months to figure out if you want to give up gambling or Jennifer. Initially, he gave up Jennifer, then boo-hooed because of the hard time Irene was giving him by asking him to be faithful. Their friend, Bill Paley, said this of their divorce. David lost Irene because he was foolish. He had a habit of falling in love and wanting to tell his best friend, and his best friend was Irene. David begged Irene not to leave him and said, if you leave me, I'll have to marry her. Irene had to sit her dad down and tell him exactly why she was getting divorced and halfway through her explanation. LB says, enough, enough. Don't make it too complicated. It went to his head. They both agreed that MGM could handle the announcement of the divorce to the press, and Irene went and had lunch with her soon-to-be ex-mother-in-law, Flossie. Irene said, this is going to hurt you. There's no one who'll be more hurt than you, and I want to tell you everything so that maybe I can forget some of the things. But I'm through. I'm gonna dump him back in your lap and take care of him because he's gonna need you. Irene started the laundry list of shit that he put her through. And halfway through, Flossie's like, oh, the bastard, that's enough. It's not, Irene said. You're going to hear all of it. When she finally gets finished with this freaking Santa Claus-sized list of crap that David had done, Irene says, I'm sorry there's no Myron now, because there's no me. It's you and him. When the papers get the news, David takes full responsibility in Luella Parsons' column. And that same night, he went to Sam Goldwyn's house and lost $31,000. The kids did get to see David just as much or probably more after they were separated. Jeffrey said he always felt left out because Danny was David's favorite and he got along better with LB. I like Grandpa a lot, he said. I always wanted to see him more than I was allowed to. He was very tactile. He loved to hug, kiss, hold me, rub my hair. The only thing that was disagreeable with him, I usually got a lecture, often centered around my father, about what a fool he was, that he could be the most important man in Hollywood, but he just wouldn't listen. Danny got along with basically everybody and this was his take on his parents' relationship. I felt an unbelievable degree of rapport. Similarly, of humor, viewpoint, energy, rhythm, style, emotionality. Such a synchronicity, even though they were quite different physically. Many other people have said this. This is not just some romantic view of their child. They were great audiences for each other. It's one of their great qualities as individuals, both. My father listened to you, what you had to say. He roared with laughter. He enjoyed. He wanted to know what happened next. Did you do this? Did you do that? The involvement. He was a great audience, a great listener, for Mother as well as for us. Mother was an equally fabulous listener, involved, caring, trusted laughing, applauding. The two great listeners of the world, each other's best audience. Irene did have their household running like it was MGM. She made everyone's schedule and memorized it. The boys had a governess and were in school, plus they had all sorts of after-school classes. She was very controlling, because she grew up in a house where she had no control. Jeff is extremely harsh on his parents, but he also gets reprimanded and memoed a lot to not yell or be rude to the household staff, so he's kind of a little bit of a brat. He remembered this of Irene's days at the. Summit Drive house. Well, she had a secretary, she wrote letters, she read books, she would play tennis with friends, she would go shopping, conferences with the cook, telephone, on the telephone a great deal. She didn't really get out of bed until noon. She'd have her breakfast around 10 and then from 10 to 12 she'd be busy with papers and telephoning. Then very often she'd go out to lunch, be home, come home about three, kills the day pretty well. That sounds awesome to me. I guess that could be boring if you've never had a job, but I would like to try, sounds sounds fun. The next movie David works on is Duel in the Sun starring Jennifer, duh. He wanted to showcase her sexuality. Irene thought it was a pornographic movie and the New York Times said it was, quote, a juvenile slopping over sex. Yet, it was the number two movie of the year. Best Years of Our Lives was number one. While the divorce is still being figured out, Irene moves to New York City and becomes a producer on Broadway, and is pretty good at it. One day, Jennifer shows up and says she needs to speak with Irene. It is an emergency. They get into a car that drives them around New York City while they talk. Jennifer begs Irene, please take David back, and when Irene says no, pass, thank you. So then Jennifer tries to throw herself out of the car. David, be more of a stereotype, dude. You have a perfectly calm, rational, smart wife, and you leave her for the crazy hot chick who shows up at your ex's work and tries to toss herself out of a moving car. Ugh, like they couldn't get any worse. David shows up at Irene's apartment and he says, I've seen the light. I know the abortion that you had in 1940 is the reason why you left me five years later. Irene finally sped things along with the divorce when David didn't show up after a surgery of Danny's. There was also a blind item in the paper saying a woman was holding out on a divorce so her husband couldn't remarry. Like that combination sent Irene over the edge. She said, this is in the papers and I think it's you and your true love and I'm not gonna stand in your way. I'm getting a lawyer and i'm getting a divorce you marry the bitch and the slut and see how you like it in irene's book she remembered their divorce being very peaceful she got her dad involved and she ended up owning half of selznick studios meaning she owned half of jennifer jones contract That's not awkward for Jennifer. She also finally got to see David's financial books, and she was disgusted. She sees that in 1946, he lost $581,000. He played the victim during the divorce. Dude, you habitually cheated on your wife. Why would anyone feel bad for you? Also during this time, Jennifer Jones is voted most uncooperative actress. She was always a very anxious, nervous, and like jealous person. Directors said she always needed loads and loads of direction and called David about every little thing. In his relationship with Jennifer, he had to turn into Irene because he married a version of himself. Jennifer was always late and super unorganized. David and Jennifer did get married in 1949, even though it seems like and neither one of them wanted to actually marry each other. Super romantic. They pretty much went to live and work in Europe for a while. They honestly weren't in one place for long. They rented the Thalberg house for the summer, staying in hotels in New York and Europe. Their home was on Tower Grove Drive. The house is... The plot of land is still there. I do have photos of how it looked when the Selznicks lived there. This house was built by John Gilbert after Selznick died. Elton John lived there in the 70s, and in 1981, it was sold to a businessman. Yep, yep, that's what really did it. He wanted to remodel it and demolished it. So now it's like this ugly ass house. Jennifer ended up having a miscarriage and was up for the country girl, but she got pregnant again and Mary Jennifer Selznick was born August 12th, 1954. David spoiled the shit out of that kid in a way that if you saw it in public, it would be endearing, but if you lived with it, you would hate it. Mary took Jennifer's spot in David's eyes. So it was a really cool family dynamic in that house, like very Bonnie Blue Butler, Rhett and Scarlett vibe. By this time, the smoking was really taking a toll on David's heart. I mean, so was the Benzos, but five packs of cigarettes are not great. When he would cut back, his weight would go up, so he never gave up smoking. Obviously, he starts having some heart attacks. Since David never went to college, he made sure his kids went, and he had Jock Whitney or Bill Paley write letters of recommendation. Jeff wanted to work in the movies, so he really hated Yale, and flat ass just did not do well there. He ended up going to UCLA for a summer, and then became an assistant director on giant. So when it came time for Danny to go to school, they sent him to Harvard, because Yale was not a fan of the Selznicks after that. The set of Farewell to Arms was such a hot mess that John Huston, who was supposed to be the director, quit before even starting, Like, didn't even unpack his bags, got there and was like, F it, and went back home. David had such a big fight with a member of the crew that he ended up calling Jeffrey to come take his place while he flew to New York City to see Irene. She tells him LB is dying of leukemia, and when he finally passed, David took care of all the funeral arrangements for Irene and wrote the eulogy that Spencer Tracy delivered. It really was an end of an era, like LB is gone and David never makes another movie after Farewell to Arms. During the 1960s, David auditioned Stephen Sondheim to write a musical version of Gone with the Wind for Broadway, and he tried to get the rights to the Duke of Windsor's life for a film. He wanted Rex Harrison for the Duke, and of course, Jennifer to play Wallace Simpson. That's a major upgrade because Wallace Simpson was not a cutie. And I know the Windsors were broke as shit. I don't know why they didn't sell him the rights, honestly. And a Sondheim Gone with the Wind musical? I'm very curious. Like, Does any of that music exist? I know there was a Gone with musical called Scarlet by Harold Rome, but David had no involvement with that. There's no Max Steiner or anything anything with it. David's final heart attack came in a lawyer's office in LA on the 22nd of June 1965. Irene went to a party the night that it happened and everyone was shocked and she said, I don't want to stay home. I will blow my brains out. Although they had been divorced, David still had dinners with Irene whenever he was in New York and always asked her advice about basically everything. Like it's a real shame they didn't work out because they were really, really best friends. Irene also didn't go to the funeral. Jennifer invited her, but she said she was better represented by her sons. Bill Paley wrote a tribute that Cary Grant read at the service, and he is buried with all the other Selznick's at Forest Lawn. It's a beautiful mausoleum. When he passed away, he was three quarters of a million dollars in debt. Jennifer burned all of his letters to her after he died as well. That must have been one hell of a bonfire, dude. She also tried to commit suicide, but it didn't take, and she ended up marrying Norton Simon. She didn't tell Mary about it beforehand. She was away at school and found out in the papers. Awesome. Most people from Southern California know Norton Simon as the name of a really nice art museum in Pasadena that's named after him. He made his money by investing in Hunt's food during the Great Depression. So Jennifer went from being like super broke to uber rich for the rest of her life. She passed away in 2009 and is next to David. Mary Jennifer studied to be an actress, attempted suicide, was locked in a psych ward, and eventually jumped to her death from the 22nd floor of a building in Westwood. She was 21 and is buried in the Selznick Mausoleum. Brother Howard lived in an assisted living facility until he died in 1980 at 82 years old. His daughter, Ruth, committed suicide after her son died in a plane crash. Myron's daughter, Joan, died in Laguna Beach in 1980. She lived the life of a recluse. The house was full of trash and vodka bottles, like father, like daughter, and her neighbors had not seen her in years. So this is our first West Coast hermit. Take note. In 1981, the Selznick boys helped create the Selznick Archive at the Harry Ransom Center in Austin, Texas. The archive consists of 4,674 document boxes plus 228 oversized or custom boxes, 147 music folders, six gallery folders, 101 sound discs, 155 bound volumes, and 35 flat file drawers. And that does not include all those letters that Jennifer Jones burnt. I love that his kids were smart enough to do this because Irving Thalbergs didn't. Jeffrey died of a heart attack in an office in LA in 1997, very much like David. I don't know where he's resting though. Daniel is still kicking. No grandkids for David and Irene, kind of makes sense after Jeffrey's stories. And so that means I don't know what's gonna happen to Irene's photos, but I do know someone who is awesome at genealogical work and documenting things and also loves Irene Mayer Selznick, that's me. I would love them. Hey, you don't know unless you ask. So back to the main question, do we want to party with David O. Selznick? You know, for all the negative things that Jeffrey said about his father, he could not deny his dad's charisma. Jeffrey said this, it's very difficult to understand what occurred when he stepped into a room. It was magic. He didn't have to open his mouth. Suddenly there was electricity and everybody picked up a beat. He would start to laugh and the laugh was infectious. It would pick up the mood of a party or a gathering. He would put a cigarette in his mouth and it would stick to his upper lip, and he'd never move it. He would talk and never take it or use his hands to smoke. Ash would fall on his shirt front, suit, the floor. There has never been anybody who could get an ash that long on a cigarette. It would mesmerize people while they were talking to him. They couldn't concentrate on what he was saying, waiting for that ash to drop. Finally, it would fall, of course, in the shower. It was part of the personality. Now, I don't think I would want to marry him or date him. Actually, A few dates could be fun. Like lots of love letters, flowers and gifts. Just don't marry David. But I think he would be a great addition to a party for sure. Like if your son who can't stand your ass is saying how awesome you are with a group of people at a party, you gotta do it. You gotta invite him. What really blows my mind is I don't understand why there are so many movies about Hitchcock and effing Citizen Kane and there's none about David. Like there is so much information out there. Like I could've, I could've taken another month like looking up stuff for this party. And clearly his story's got a lot going on from the very beginning. What's odd is there's no audio interviews of David. I do have a clip of him accepting the Oscar for Rebecca, so you can hear his voice, it's on my blog. It really pisses me off that when movies about old Hollywood are made, mank, no one tries to actually sound like the people they're playing. I did one Google search and bam, David O. Selznick does not sound like a stereotypical Jew from the set of Mrs. Maisel. How is that not offensive at this point that every Jewish person from old Hollywood sounds like that? LB Mayer doesn't sound like that. He had a very nice speaking voice, no accent. Same thing with Irving Thalberg. All their voices are on my blog. Like, I don't know how many times I have to say this. That generation of Jewish men wanted to assimilate. They did not want to sound like a stereotype. It makes me want to punch people in the throat who don't do their own investigations. It's just lazy. Like, do some research and hire a dialect coach. Like, actors, what are you getting paid for? Obviously, don't watch a historical movie with me. I'm a nightmare. Thanks for listening to Hollywood Party. For more information about this episode, please go to hollywoodpartypodcast.com and follow us on Instagram. Like and review us on Apple Podcasts podcast or Spotify or however the hell you're listening to us and see you next time.